It's here in the city. It's here in the city. This is here in the city. This is here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. I'm Sarah Harris. New message. Truth should be truth. But then it depends on, in the telling, whose truth is it. We're here most Tuesdays, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape and mapping the city with voices of creative social change in and around Los Angeles. On Pacifica Radio, powered by the people, thanks to the generous support of you, our listeners, the capable crew at KPFK, the innovators of web-based radio at SoundCloud, news you might have missed at newsdesk.org, and the community-funded reporting project, Spot Us. You can find us on the web at here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. Good afternoon, KPFK listeners, and to those of you listening to our show on the web, today is Tuesday, June 21st, 2011. I'm Sarah Harris. Today on Here in the City, we visit two historic arts institutions on the east side of the Los Angeles River, and we sit in on a special session of the Infection Monologues, a theatrical celebration of life and love in the face of HIV and AIDS, 30 years after the first diagnosis of the disease was made. They couldn't imagine how horrified I was when I realized I must have picked up HIV when I was 20 stupid years old. And they couldn't understand why I wasn't hell-bent on figuring out who had given it to me, but was more hell-bent on figuring out how I was not going to let it ruin me. Today marks the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, here in the Northern Hemisphere. For college students, summer has traditionally marked an opportunity to catch up on credits, especially for students who have family obligations or who work during the school year. But as the academic year comes to an end this month, colleges across California are canceling summer session to spare fall and spring semester course offerings from the state budget acts. Summer enrollment dropped at Cal State Universities from 92,000 students in 2008 to just 12,000 in 2010. The number of students enrolled is expected to be even lower this year when classes start in July. East Los Angeles College has a full slate of course offerings for the summer and has the good fortune to be celebrating the launch of its new art museum thanks to a bond measure passed a decade ago, and thanks to the philanthropic investment of an actor known as the Merchant of Menace. This was my father's world, Mr. Barnett. The shrieking of mutilated victims became the music of his life. The blood of a thousand men and women was spilled within these walls. Limbs twisted and broken, flesh burned black. That's the voice of the great Vincent Price, who would have celebrated his 100th birthday last month. Price was a master of horror and suspense, best known for his roles in The House of Usher and The Pit and the Pendulum. Less known in the popular psyche was his role as an art promoter and collector. Price left part of his considerable collection of Latin American, African, and Native American art to East L.A. College 
Our arts editor, Jesse Lerner, went for a tour of the museum with director Karen Rapp, who explains a bit about Price's role as a patron of the arts. He um, grew up in St. Louis. He um, was a stage actor. He was an art historian at Yale and continued studying in London. And the story is that at the age of 12, he purchased his first artwork, which was a Rembrandt print. And um, he got hooked at that point. And he and his wives and daughter are um, still continuing his legacy um, in the arts. He probably donated over the course of 40 years about 2,000 objects to East L.A. College. Why did he choose East L.A. College? He and his wife came here in 1951 um, at the invitation of one of the art department faculty, and he was the graduation speaker. Um, He continued to come to the campus, popped in on studio classes, And by the end of the 50s, he and his wife, Mary Grant, decided that they really needed to support the arts on the east side of Los Angeles because they felt that there were too few opportunities for students and community members to have firsthand experiences with artwork. So they they took matters into their own hands and they gave the school 90 artworks, and at that time in 1958, the school renamed its existing gallery after the prices. And now you guys have a new building as of a couple weeks ago, right? Uh, Right. So the story continues then for almost uh, 60 years. Um, My predecessor, Tom Silliman, ran the Vincent and Mary Grant Price Gallery from 1959 to 2006. And during that time, I think there were more than 100 shows that he produced. They ranged from collection pieces from Vincent Price, also pieces that the UCLA, at that time, Ethnographic Museum, which is now the Fowler, loaned to us. So we had artworks that were from Africa, from Oceania, from South America. There was always an eclectic mix here. And about 10 years ago, the campus in its master plan decided that the arts were critical to the campus and to East LA, and it um, put forward an idea to have a complex for dance, music, theater, art history, studio art, and the museum designed. And now we're standing in part of this complex that Um, broke ground in June 08 and opened to the public in May 2011. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, it's really, uh, it's amazing to see when we open the pride that I think the community has in having an arts venue like this. And the previous exhibition space was really quite small. It was a very modest, typical college white box. It was a 25 by 25 space and uh, was made to house all, all ranges of work. And now we've uh, shot into the 21st century in this very stylish, sleek uh, building that has a designated space for the art collection in the basement 
and then has enough individual galleries so that we can show temporary artworks that we feature by contemporary artists and at the same time highlight selections from the collection. And can you talk a little bit about the exhibitions that are inaugurating your new space? I would love to. The, the main uh, inaugural show, the title of it is Round Trip, and it signifies the fact that eight of the college's alumni artists have come back to the college and are part of this opening celebration. Um, I have worked on many group shows in the past, and this show, without a doubt, had the most instantaneous enthusiasm from these artists because each one of them immediately felt uh, that it was important both for themselves and for the students and the community right now in Los Angeles to see what an important impact ELAC had on their artistic career. So there are eight artists and each artist is represented by somewhere around 10 pieces that range over a span of 30 years. So I really was looking for work that would represent each of the artists at kind of their starting point up to the present. And then you're also showing some selections from the museum's permanent collection? We have um, these wonderful spaces on the third floor, and they give us the opportunity to curate shows from the collection. So at present, the three shows are... Um, a selection of works that talk about the hundred years or so of Mexican art history, starting with Posada, looking at tendencies toward political and social activism in Mexico through the arts, and then looking also at reactions that other artists had in the 20th century who felt that they would pursue their own kind of individual uh, visions of artwork, so it's a lovely show. It has about 40 pieces in it. The other permanent collection show was curated by our faculty member, Sarana Singh Bischofsberger, and she chose also about 40 pieces from the collection from the 20th century, mostly, that um, depict the human figure. So you have very realistic paintings, you have abstract sculpture, and it gives, I think, students the ability to see what a what a uh, important role an artist plays in depicting the human figure and the range of possibilities that exist. So it's really designed for either our life drawing classes, art history classes, studio art classes, and then, of course, the community at large, the art lovers. Uh, thanks for letting me show you around the Vincent Price collection. It's been my pleasure. And I'm pretty sure that by now you can tell it's my enthusiasm, too. The Vincent Price Museum is currently featuring work by world-renowned East L.A. College alumni such as Gronk, Patsy Valdez, and Willie Heron. This evening, the Vincent Price Art Museum inaugurates its collection of art antiquities from the Americas. We'll have a link to the museum's website at Here in the City, that's H-E-A-R in the city, dot org. 
two miles west of East Los Angeles College in an old Victorian house settled between the 101 freeway and the 10 freeway, you'll find another gem of the arts on the east side of the Los Angeles River. The Neighborhood Music School was founded in 1914 in Boyle Heights by Jewish and Russian immigrants. It's a nonprofit education center offering affordable access to music instruction for string instruments, brass, woodwinds, piano, and voice. Here in the city's Luis Sierra Campos attended the school's 97th spring recital and spoke with some of the budding musicians about their practice. My name is Yolanda Garcia, and I'm from Oaxaca, Mexico. And what does your daughter play? Uh, she plays violin. And how long has she been playing violin for? Um, since January. Of this year? Yes, 2010. So about six months? Uh, around, yeah. Around six months? How many hours a week does she practice the violin? Um, around 30 minutes every day. Seven days a week? Um, sometimes five, six. Depends on the mood. My name is Yamidez Martinez and I am seven years old. What do you like about the violin? I like it when you play it, it gets a good sound. Uh huh. And it's a very beautiful instrument. Okay. And what was the name of the song you played? Um, Oh Susana. Oh Susana. Uh, my name is Chao. I'm from Thailand, originally. And where do you live now in LA? I live. Uh, we live. Our family live in uh, Monterey Park. And uh, tell me about your daughter. Can you introduce me to your daughter? My daughter. Her name is Kate. She's a student of uh, Neighborhood Music School for Y O Y. You see, how how long have you been here? A year and a half. A year and a half. Two years. Two years. And um, so, how old is your daughter? Um, she's right now, eight years old. And uh, so she's been coming to the school for two years. Two years. And how many hours a day or a week does she spend practicing the piano, which she plays very beautifully? Um, she's practicing uh, 15 minutes every day. Yeah, for every day, 15 minutes. Seven days a week? Seven days a week. And um, why do you think, that as a parent, that's important for your daughter to practice the piano um, as she does? Oh, okay, uh, I think music, all, all kind of music is good for kids. So they keep their their mind uh, creative, and um, she learn a lot from music, and um, that will help her in the school as well. Yo me llamo Marvin Santizo y soy de la ciudad de Guatemala, pero ya resido aquí desde hace 20 años en los Estados Unidos. ¿Y qué edad tiene usted? Yo tengo 47 años ahorita. Eh, dígame, este, ¿qué instrumento tocó usted hoy? Eh, el violín. ¿Y cuántos años tiene tocando el violín? Aproximadamente 7 años. ¿Siete años? 7 años estar viniendo a la escuela, a esta escuela. ¿Y por qué escogió aprender el, el violín a un, una edad que es un poquito más... Este, Madura. Ah, lo que pasó es que nuestra familia era muy numerosa, éramos seis de familia 
y mi padre era el único que trabajaba y no tenía capacidad para, para pagarnos educación y, y pude, me pudo pagar educación pública y logré estudiar lo más que pude, logré sacar un título en mi país y luego emigré para acá y siempre tuve la inquietud de aprender a tocar algo. Siempre compraba guitarras, compraba pianos, compraba muchos instrumentos, trompetas, hasta compré el violín, pero nunca, nunca podía tocarlo porque yo quería aprenderlo a tocar yo solo. Entonces hasta que yo ya vine aquí y mi situación económica me, me lo permitió, ya pude pagar unas clases para poder a, aprender a tocar violín. Este, ¿Usted cree que una persona ya más madura puede aprender la música como usted? Yo pienso que sí, es lo que, lo que se quiere es determinación y ganas de hacerlo. Y pienso que sí se puede porque yo pensé que no iba a poder y, y sí estoy pudiendo. Y, este, y la maestra me dice que, que voy bien y ella me sigue dando ánimo para seguir. My name is Selena Nishioka and I'm 12 years old. And what did you play today? I played um, piano, a um, Mozart sonata number four in G major. How long have you been playing music or played the piano? Um, for seven years, yeah. Seven years? So how old were you when you first started? I was five. Five? Yeah. And how about how many hours a day do you spend or how much time a day do you spend playing the piano? Um... Probably about 45 minutes. Every day? Um, if I have lots of homework and I have that violin and I do ballet too, so if I don't have time, then I can't. So wait a minute. So you play the violin, you play the piano, and you do ballet. Yeah. And you go to school. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> How do you have much time for all that? Well... I don't have time. <laughs> so I kind of squish in time. So I kind of leave my homework aside until I do all my activities. Mm -hmm. And then I do my homework I really want to finish. So I usually sleep at like 12 in the morning. Our visit to the Neighborhood Music School in Boyle Heights was produced by Here in the City's Luis Sierra Campos, who also coordinates youth media for the Boyle Heights Beat. We'll have more information about the music school on our website, Here in the City, that's H-E-A-R in the city, dot org. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. You are listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego. And 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. An archive and a podcast of our shows is at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org.
and at KPFK. Or you can like us on Facebook if you like. And visit us at our website here in the city.org. And follow us on Twitter. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimate that nationwide, more than one million people are infected with the AIDS virus. Of that one million, 20 percent are not aware that they have the virus. June marks HIV testing month worldwide. It also marks 30 years since the first case of autoimmune deficiency syndrome was diagnosed here in the gay community in the city of Los Angeles. The effects on personal lives and public health around the world have been devastating. Because of advances in medication, people are living longer and feeling healthier with HIV than ever before, especially in Los Angeles, where there is a strong and active nonprofit sector working on improving health for people infected with HIV. I sat down with Alex Garner and Brody Brown of a new play called The Infection Monologues. The characters are based on true stories of men who tested positive for HIV after the year 2000. We start off with Alex Garner's own monologue from the beginning of the play. I knew I had HIV even before I tested positive. I'd taken enough risks to know that eventually it might catch up with me. So when I got this really bad flu, part of me suspected I'd gotten myself infected. It finally happened. I was living in San Francisco at the time and went to a local clinic for an HIV test. I remember having my blood drawn and thinking, you may not want to come back and hear the bad news. But I did come back. I sat there looking at the nurse who was going to present me with my results. He was hot. Very Italian-looking, dark wavy hair, Roman nose, uh, thick wavy dark hair and chest hair peeking out of the V-collar of his scrubs and bulging biceps. (laughs) I wondered, just how inappropriate would it be to make a date with a nurse I met at an AIDS clinic? Then my mind began to wander, and I thought about what it would mean when the results came back positive. I thought about it dozens of times, what my life would be like when I became infected. I had it all figured out. I would be the picture of healthy living with HIV. I'd go jogging in Golden Gate Park. I'd take up yoga and acupuncture. I'd spend time in Chinatown shopping for herbs and roots. Roots are very salubrious. It would be like having my own sitcom, Me and HIV, a show about me and my kooky new partner, HIV, and all of our wacky adventures. The opening montage would consist of clips of me taking my meds, cheerfully walking the streets of San Francisco, getting encouragement from my doctor, standing on the beach, contemplating life's great mysteries. Then at the end, my friends and I, and HIV, of course, would all pile into one of those old Cadillac convertibles, you know, the really long ones, and try to drive down Lombard Street. Oh, HIV, you so crazy. And where does it go from there? Where, does the, where, where do you take us from there? From there, um, we have each character talk about getting their positive test result. We go back a little bit in terms of exploring where these characters were um, and what their lives were like before they became infected um, to get a better understanding of, of, of their sort of decision-making process around risk um, and around their sexuality. And then from there, it goes into how these ex- characters have sort of come to terms with their HIV diagnosis, understanding issues around health and sort of coming to terms with issues of disclosure and dating, and, and then this larger, rather pervasive issue of shame and stigma that each character addresses once they find out they're positive. And from there, 
we go into what would, for lack of a better word, I use a, a sort of an, an, an integration in terms of one's experience and identity and sort of coming to terms to a, a place where they can sort of feel contented uh, and at peace with HIV in their life and really sort of healthy and empowered. So that's like a pretty radical approach, I think, in terms of what's usually out in the media and in public discourse around HIV and AIDS to feel um, contentment and a, a sense of love and zest for life and to really think of it in positive terms, mm-hmm. not HIV positive or in addition to HIV positive, but rather just like a positive approach to life. Um, you don't hear that that often. No, you don't. And I think that's that's part of um, one of the things about this show is that it's really about the modern experience. Uh, and it's in, in contrast to things like the normal heart. Uh, which you just won the Tony, um, or Rent, or Angels in America, which really explores the 80s and 90s experience of HIV, which is often about death and dying and loss. And this show isn't about that. It's about living. It's about the day-to-day life experience of men with HIV. One of the things that was really important for us when we started this project is that it's not a prevention model, and it's not a cautionary tale, that the experiences and stories of HIV-positive men have value. And they're not just to be used as a means of preventing people from getting HIV, but that that they're legitimate in and of their own. And Brody, did you have something that you wanted to share? Yeah, no, I think just to give you some context, the character I wrote is um, 27. Um, I think he's the youngest one of all the monologues. Um, And he has um, an... You know, he's had a lot of experience with HIV in his life. He has an HIV-positive uncle. He's that result. He's a result of that fear-based testing. Um, I think also sort of important to his experience is that he seroconverted before he ever really had a real relationship. So I think that creates other issues for the character. But this um, passage comes sort of at the end, that part. <clears throat> One of the hardest things I had to go through when I found out my status was that feeling of being alone. Yes, I had my uncle, who I love and couldn't be closer to, but there was never anyone my age or anyone that looked like me who knew I was positive, who I knew was positive. Gradually, over the years, I watched as more people my age zero converted. But this time, when I knew about it, I could step in and be there when they needed someone to make them not feel like a total, untouchable outsider. I remember how different I felt from my friends when I first found out my status, and how when they'd say, I can't imagine what you're going through, I always thought, You're right. You can imagine what I'm going through. They couldn't imagine how horrified I was when I realized I must have picked up HIV when I was 20 stupid years old. And they couldn't understand why I wasn't hell-bent on figuring out who had given it to me, but was more hell-bent on figuring out how I was not going to let it ruin me. In an odd way, my status has set up a second tier of family for me, kind of like a colony of invisibly bound bees in an HIV hive. You know how everyone says that after they come out, they develop this sort of surrogate family that actually understands them, accepts them, and supports them? I've been able to build my own in a way, with those who have felt pushed back to the fringe of the community by the virus. After they thought they'd only have to come to terms with one major new identity and come out as something only once in their lives, they realize they have to do it all over again with HIV. For me, being a part of Generation Y and being able to write from that perspective where it's this, you know, this new look at the world and this feeling like just keep on trucking. I think for me, too, it's sort of the way I was raised. Um, I actually do have a gay dad. That sort of unique family dynamic, having a straight mom and a gay dad sort of, I guess, 
taught me to really sort of push and fight and sort of do what I believe in. So I think that makes its way into my work sometimes as well. And that's it for Here in the City today. Special thanks to Jesse Lerner, Luis Sierra Campos, Tandisizwe Shimurenga, Daniela Gerson, Sabiha Khan, Albert Chacon, Rachel Salmon, Will Coley, Holly Harper, Karen Ness, and to you, our listeners. We will be back next week with more radio realities from the urban landscape. Until then, 